0: Well, I am not going to attempt to give you a sermon on that entire passage, because that would take us 13 hours. What I will do, since most of you have that passage in your possession with the bulletin insert, I would really like to draw your attention to chapter 23, to what in some Bibles, at least in mine up here, just identifies the crucifixion itself. There's some... I've titled this message, Father, Forgive Them, because this actually comes right from verse 34. While Jesus is hanging on the cross, he says these words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And I don't know if you've ever found yourself in a position like this. If you are really honest with yourself, I was thinking about titling this message, What to Do When You Believe Jesus Is Wrong. And we could talk about what we do when we think Jesus is wrong. Because I'm not sure about you, but I will only use myself as an example. When I first read that statement, I want to say to myself, that's absolutely not true. It's absolutely not true that the people who are crucifying you do not know what they are doing. They are very well aware of the fact of what they are doing. In fact, we've read several parables in the past that talk about the Pharisees in a parable... ...as being those who say, hey, let's get rid of the heir, then the inheritance will be ours. It it seems to me that they know what they are doing. It seems to me that people who mistreat others very well know what they are doing. So why does Jesus say, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing? I think that's a valid question. It's a question I want to ask, and it's a question in the next ten minutes I'm going to attempt to answer... And I think the answer that Luke gives us in the passage comes actually in the few verses immediately after Jesus says this. I read the Gospels in this way. I read the Gospels that Luke is narrating for us exactly what is happening. And no doubt Jesus has heard the kinds of accusations that he's hearing from people while he's on the cross. In fact, the way I read this narrative, even in chapter 2, he is being mocked. He is being derided. He's being made fun of. This is a constant thing that's happening to Jesus. And in fact, it continues happening even after Jesus utters these words about forgiveness. It says in two verses later, or I'm sorry, actually in the very next verse, verse 35, if you want to follow along, you can. It says, the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now, I want to emphasize two statements that are made. Some by the religious leaders, or I'm sorry, some by, oh, let's see. Some by the rulers and then some by the soldiers. Here are the two phrases. If he is the Christ of God and if you are the king of the Jews. Now, if you're reading along in Luke's gospel, Jesus has faced questions like this before. He's faced if-then questions. He didn't face them primarily by the rulers or by the soldiers or by the crowds or by the authorities. He faced them by the devil. If you flip all the way back in your Bible to Luke chapter 4, when Jesus is led by the Spirit, mind you, into the wilderness in order to be tempted by the devil, these are some of the devil's accusations. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Several verses later, he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. If this is really true, then do this. If this is really true, then do this. If you're the Christ, save yourself in us. Meaning, if you don't save yourself in us, it's because you're not the Christ. But Luke adds something really interesting at the end of the temptation narrative for our benefit. In verse 13 of Luke 4, he says, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from Jesus until an opportune time. I'd like to submit to you, that Jesus' final days is such an opportune time. The devil is continuing to tempt Jesus through the mouths of the rulers and the soldiers. Jesus knows this. In Luke chapter 4, immediately after the temptation, Jesus waltzes into a synagogue opens up a scroll of the prophet Isaiah and reads from chapter 61, telling the people, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom from those who are bound, to bind up the brokenhearted and to to proclaim good news to everyone. Jesus recognizes that there are multiple factors of brokenness at work in our world. There are people who choose to do horrible things to other people, and there is an enemy of our souls who wreaks havoc in the world such that it makes it appear logical, normal, and right for people to treat other people with disrespect and and arrogance. Jesus knows this better than anyone. Paul picks up on this in 2nd Timothy chapter 2 while he's writing to Timothy who is a young pastor of the church in Ephesus. And let me listen to what Paul tells Timothy. I think it gives us a little bit of a clue here. Paul is talking to Timothy about what the Lord's servant must be. This is an exhortation to a pastor. This is an exhortation to any church leader. And for, for my vantage point, this is an exhortation to any Christian period. But Paul says the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. But he must be kind to everyone. Teachable. Patiently enduring evil. Correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them, the opponents, repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Honestly, I think that's the best description of the relationship between human sinfulness and the devil being behind the actions of humans that I've ever read in my entire life. Escape from the snare of the devil, the trap of the devil, after being captured by him to do his will. So who's at fault here? Is it the devil or is it people? The answer is yes. People are captured And when they're captured, they're captives, who Jesus said he's come to release the captives. When people are captive, they end up thinking it's normal and good and right to act in ways that are destructive both for themselves and for others. Are they complicit in those actions? Yes. Are they duped in those actions? Yes. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. This, I think, is the central reason and the central ability for any Christian to follow the teachings of Jesus when it comes to forgiving people in our own lives. It is so tempting to imagine, I will not forgive that person because they know exactly what they're doing. They'll do it again, and I'm never going to get any freedom from this. I do want to insert here because I think there is some misguided teaching in the church by Christian leaders, by pastors, when it comes to the issue of forgiveness. And I want to make a little separation here just for our own benefit. I think there is a big difference between forgiving a person and trusting them. But I do not think it is a Christian's prerogative under any circumstances to withhold forgiveness from another person. And the reason I don't is because Jesus is putting to death the very kinds of things that otherwise cripple mankind. And let me see if I can explain to you what I mean. In Ephesians 4, Paul gives one of the clearest examples of what it means to not be held captive by the devil. He talks about, in your anger do not sin, do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil a foothold. Do not give the devil an opportunity. Do not let him set up camp in your house or in your soul so that he can wreak havoc in all your relationships. And Paul proceeds to explain how we are to get rid of all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander and malice. Be kind and tenderhearted, forgiving one another just as God in Christ has forgiven you. What Paul is explaining is that the way the enemy gets a foothold in people's lives is giving them the freedom to believe that by holding on to the bitterness, the righteous anger, the justification for why I'm never going to talk to that person again. We are making ourselves the judge and are allowing things like bitterness and resentment and anger and clamor and slander to rule over us. If anybody on planet Earth had a reason to be bitter, it was Jesus. Who comes in nothing but love and humility and self-sacrifice and gets mocked, scorned, rejected, and killed. If anybody in the world had a reason to be angry, it was Jesus. If anybody had a reason to return mockery for mockery, it was Jesus. Jesus. If anybody had a reason to be scoffing at another person or to, to, be, uh, to shout out vehemently, which is basically all that clamor means, I mean, think of the crowds and all their shouting and ruckus. They, they overwhelm Pilate. He doesn't know what else to do because he can't silence the crowd. Jesus might have wanted to silence them by yelling right back. I fall victim to this all the time. I get my feelings hurt, I get defensive. And in an instant, I think the way to resolve this problem is to yell back. I do it. And in that moment, I buy into the belief that it's anger and clamor and slander that are really going to win the day. I want you to notice what is happening here. Anger, clamor, bitterness, slander are bringing their worst to the person of Jesus. And Jesus knows what he's come to do. He has come... To take the sins of the world upon himself, put them to death, and leave them in the grave and come back to life himself. He does not respond in kind to any of these matters. And the the reason why that's so hope-filled for us is because in that moment, Jesus actually put those things to death. He actually destroyed bitterness. He destroyed resentment. He destroyed anger. He destroyed clamor. He destroyed slander. He put them all to death and did not allow them to gain the upper hand on him. Notice what would have happened if Jesus would have taken the mantra that so many people do. I'm going to take this. I'm going to hold on to this. I'm going to take this to the grave. You take this to the grave and it wins. You refuse to take it to the grave. Righteousness wins. That's what Jesus is doing here. He refuses to take the bait. So that when he dies, he dies in pure righteousness. And he frees you and he frees me to when we are called to forgive in the same way Jesus did. It's not up to us to take on all this stuff. Jesus has already done it. Forgiveness has nothing to do with us feeling confident that the person who hurt us is going to stop doing it again. It has everything to do with saying, I'm going to give the responsibility... For carrying out the punishment that I want that person to face. I'm going to give that responsibility to Jesus and I'm going to back off. Whether I learn to trust them again is going to largely depend upon how well they respond to the mercy and grace I extend them. But whether or not I forgive them has nothing to do with their actions. Case in point. You tell me that the rulers and soldiers all backed off as soon as Jesus said, Father, forgive them. False. He was still alive when he said that. And they kept right on going. Jesus took those sins, nailed them to the cross so that they do not have to have victory over his followers. They have no place in his kingdom. Which is how he can say to us outlandish things like love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It makes no sense. Unless we rest and trust in the strength that Jesus displayed on our behalf, In doing what none of us could ever do. Everyone of you in this room, myself included, has issues with people we wrestle with trying to figure out how we're going to make those relationships work. How am I going to extend forgiveness? How am I going to extend compassion? I don't have any compassion in me to extend. That'd be a great place to begin. I begin there almost every day. I don't seem to get much farther than that. It's really sad. Except that I'm a follower of the one who actually did this. I'm not him. So when it comes time to forgive another person, it is me simply saying, Jesus, I have a lot of hurt. I have a lot of pain. I have a lot of m- things I feel misunderstood. I don't really know what to do with it. You know what to do with it. You know that person's heart. You know the extent to which that person might be duped and tripped up by the enemy. I don't know that. It seems plain as day to me that they're just a jerk. Seems like a pretty safe judgment to me. When Jesus is saying, I know the whole picture. Trust me with that person. Give it to me and let me handle it. I think Jesus is displaying this exact issue and he is simply saying to his father, forgive them. They are spokespeople right now for the enemy and they don't even realize it. They are caught by the snare of the devil and are living out his practices in the world. Do you know how many people today, even who profess Jesus' name, are still ensnared by the devil in the way they choose to live their lives? Every day we have an opportunity where we're going to put our trust. And putting our trust in the one who puts sin to death is a far greater act of faith than holding that for ourselves and wanting to be the ones responsible for dishing out the punishment that we feel other people deserve. We're not to be that kind of people. We're to be the people who walk in faith and trust that Jesus will handle things the way he sees fit. The way he sees fit is to look at people and recognize what I think Paul teaches us in Ephesians 6, and that is that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. What kind of spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places are going on in our world? It's twisted ideologies, worldly ways of thinking, the devil's stomping ground, ways of convincing people that the way relationships work best is when we just cut ties with people and move on. And Jesus is saying there's another way. Our battle isn't against people. Many of them are caught. Many of them make malicious choices. Sometimes it's because they see no other way. Sometimes it's because their hearts are hard. But it's not ours to call. It's for Jesus to determine. If anybody had a reason to pour out hatred or vengeance or wrath on any of these people, it would have been Jesus, but he chose none of these things. Rather, what he chose was to pray, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And thank God that's the way he thinks about people that prayer is also extended to you and to me a prayer of our savior while being put to death on a cross pleading for the forgiveness of the very ones who put him there that is a strange and beautiful person doing that for you and for me And I say that not to be irreverent when I call Jesus strange, but that is very different from the way you and I would think that the king would act. But that's why we carry in palm branches and not swords on Palm Sunday. Because it's gentle, it's peaceful, it's humble. It's not militant, it's not violent. It's not repay evil with evil. Jesus knows a power that many of us know nothing about, and I'm thankful for it. And he calls us to simply trust him in the way we choose to live as his people. That, I think, is in a large part what Palm Sunday is about. The people chose their, their, their hero, and it was someone who was going to pick up a sword, and had, in fact, had already done so. And then they decided what they thought of the guy who chooses to do this, and they didn't want anything of it. But my goodness, what a blessing we, we stand to receive because Jesus chose to be a king in this way not in the one who dishes out punishment based upon what everybody deserves. That's a reason, I think, to celebrate. Jesus, thank you for your truth to us. Thank you so much for your humility and grace. I admit I don't understand this and rarely live this out. But we're here today to gather around you and praise your name for who you are. And for what you've done, and I ask by your Spirit that you would work this powerfully into our hearts and souls so that we begin to be changed people. Show us this week where we are tempted to draw on the sword instead of the palm branches. Give us your grace in the way you look at people by recognizing how people might be enslaved and ensnared by the devil when they choose to act in ways that we don't think are right. Give us your heart and your compassion for our world. And thank you so much for refusing to take bitterness and resentment to the grave. By doing so, you refuse to allow sin to gain the upper hand, and you now hand that victory to us. By your Spirit, show us how that looks in our lives so that we might treat one another the way you treated us. And may you be pleased by our efforts as your children to live out your character in the world. We thank you and we praise you. In your name we pray, amen.